Good morning, church. It's always good to worship together and to sing songs of praise to God. Uh, it's been the, that kind of a week, as I said, where you look around and you think, wow, we need you, God. And he always comes through. And he works through his people in amazing ways. And, and uh, we're going to see some of that later as we go through the sermon. And, and I wish I had a fantastic story to start out with. I wish I had a really funny story. Um, maybe a life-changing story. And I don't. We're just going to open up the Bible to Daniel. Because that's where the story is. So Daniel chapter 2, if you join me, grab a Bible. Open up to Daniel chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you from the back. Daniel's in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, so the next couple uh, weeks, if you want, you can just put a big bookmark there in Daniel, knowing that we're going to kind of keep coming back to it. Daniel chapter 2. Last Sunday, we opened up the book of Daniel. We discovered how his wise companions were taken captive. They marched 500 miles uh, as prisoners into an unknown land, ungodly culture, an atmosphere that basically uh, screamed out, we are not godly at all. And for three years, their diets, their education, even their names were changed to that of uh, Babylon. And they followed the Babylonian tradition and culture. And the purpose of the food, the names, the education was an effort of total indoctrination. We're going to change you over. We're going to make you think differently, live differently. We're going to change you from your Jewish beliefs and the God you worshipped to the Babylonian beliefs and the gods that we worship. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to communicate to these young men, hey, I know you want to look to God, but you're going to look to my God. That's what was happening. And although these young men were from Jerusalem were immersed into the studies of of that Babylonian culture and literature and religion, we discovered last week that they remain faithful to God. That's a tough thing to do in a culture that's very godless, isn't it? They were in Babylon, but they were not of Babylon. And they learned about the culture. They achieved excellence in their work and their education. Uh, they served the people. They prayed for God's help. And they maintained their integrity. Again, a tough thing to do in a culture that is so anti-God. In the same manner, I think we talked about this last week, that we too can discover that in the culture that we live in, we don't have to look like the culture we live in. We don't have to be of this world. We might be living in this world, but we don't have to be of this world. And Daniel and his friends show us that there's an inner conviction that we can hold despite the pressure that comes from the outside. And that God-honoring convictions yield God-given rewards. Let me repeat that again. God-honoring convictions yield God-given rewards. I believe that when you stand for God, He will bless you. And it may not be in that very moment. It might be down the road. It might be when you get to heaven. Regardless of when the God-given rewards come, they do come. And today we know that there's a similar challenge to not be captured and carried away in this culture that we're in uh, that's taking us away from God. I mean, the lure can be innocent uh, and it can be evident at times. And other times it's very uh, obvious and treacherous the way this world pulls at us. So we have to be alert to what's taking place in our culture. We have to pay attention to what's going on. We must be careful not to surrender our faith and surrender our convictions and just sort of go with what everybody else is doing. It is so easy to do. 
Because we said, like last week, well, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't want to offend anybody. And yet we will offend the God we serve for the sake of not bothering the person next to us. But how do we handle a circumstance that appears unchangeable? So, okay, Rex, I want to do this. I'm living in a godless culture, but I want to be godly. But you don't know my boss. You don't know my coach. You don't know the circumstance that I'm in because there's a lot of pressure right now. How do I handle this? I'm glad you asked that question. We're going to find that answer in Daniel chapter 2 where we read that one night during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, he had this disturbing dream and he could not sleep. So here is this, this very ungodly king, I believe, was given a vision, a dream from God. God's working in this ruthless life of King Nebuchadnezzar through this dream. And it wasn't the first time that God's used dreams to speak to people. Some of us, perhaps, if we've even woke up in the middle of the night thinking, I think God was trying to tell me something. Maybe you've had those. But we know as we look through the Bible, Jacob and Joseph received dreams from God. Pharaoh received uh, troubling dreams in which Joseph interpreted And we know that he was warned in a dream. Pilate's wife was warned in a dream not to mess with Jesus. He was an innocent man. But yet, Pilate washed his hands of all that. If you remember last week, we learned in verse 17 of chapter 1. Let me read this to you. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. So we learned that from verse 17, chapter 1 last week, right? So during those three years, God gave these young men an incredible understanding and aptitude for learning, and God gave Daniel this ability to interpret dreams. And so we get to chapter 2, and it's almost one of those, for instance, let me share with one of those moments that God gave Daniel a gift to use, and he used it for his glory. So, here we are, chapter 2, and let's take a look, starting in verse uh, 1. One night during the second year of the reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him so much he couldn't sleep. Verse 2, he called in his his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that troubles me. Tell me what I dream." for I must know what it means. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king in in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be demolished into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed... And what the dream means, I'll give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. Verse 7. They said, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. And the king replied, I can see through your tricks. You're trying to stall for time because you know I'm serious about what I said. If you don't tell me the dream, you'll be condemned You have conspired to tell me lies in hopes that something will change. But tell me the dream, then I will know that you can tell me what it means. The king has this troubling dream. 
He wants to know what it means. But Nebuchadnezzar couldn't know for certain if these guys were really giving him the correct interpretation or not. Maybe they're just making it up, make it sound really good. Because sometimes we all we can all do this. Somebody tells us something, we, we interpret it for them. Like, oh, you know, that sounds like this is what's going on. And we might be right, we might be wrong. But Nebuchadnezzar's like, you know what? I'm not going to listen to your interpretation so I know you can tell me what the dream is. So how about you tell me what the dream is and the interpretation? Then I'll know that the interpretation is correct. Oh boy, these magicians, these enchanters, these sorcerers, these astrologers protested. (laughs) They claimed, this is unfair. There's no way that can be done. There's, There's no one who can reveal the dream, King. Nobody. And despite their protest, Nebuchadnezzar didn't ask too much of these magicians, the astrologers or the sorcerers. I mean, these men made it their life, their supposed ability to be able to contact these gods and gain secrets from this special and spiritual realm that they worked with. So if that's their job, they contact spiritual realms all the time, then this shouldn't be too hard for you. I mean, after all, this is what you do, right? If they really were what they claimed to be, this should not be an issue. But this was intimidating. Because they're looking at the king and they're listening to what he just said about being torn limb from limb and their house is being made rubble because they know that the king was not bluffing. This was real stuff. The harsh threat of Nebuchadnezzar and the method of execution described was perfectly consistent with his character and also of former kings of ancient eastern monarchs. Archer describes one method of dismemberment like this. Four trees were bent inward and tied together at the top. The victim was then tied one limb to each of those four trees with a rope. Then the rope, the top rope, was cut and the tree snapped into four pieces, taking apart the body into four pieces. That's what he did. That's not a made-up story. So these magicians and sorcerers and chanters are sitting there going, we've seen it firsthand. We know he is ruthless. And it may or may not be fair to compare, but do we know that ruthless, ruthless leaders still exist today? Yes. It was revealed that North Koreans Kim Jong-un ordered the killing of his exiled half-brother. We know that. We know that he executed five senior governor, uh, government officials with anti-aircraft guns. He's ruthless. Leaders like this still exist today. And when we look at these leaders and we look back to the Bible, we say, wow, evil is still evil. It is existent. So in a similar thought, Nebuchadnezzar was ruthless. His threats were real. So as we read on, it says the astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dreams. And no king, however great or powerful, have ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter astrologer. Look at verse 11. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream. Listen to this. And they do not live here among people. Oh, did they just confess that the gods that they worship are not real? Sort of sounds like it. When they said this, they basically admitted the true revelation comes from God down to man. And they understood perhaps against their own inclination that revelation was not the achievement of man. 
It isn't something that man comes around and says, I've come up with this on my own. What they're basically proclaiming is, only God can reveal that. And their gods do not live among the people, so they're not going to get any kind of word or inclination of what this is all about. So despite all their wisdom, real or imagined, these wise men had no answers for Nebuchadnezzar. None whatsoever. And here's why. Because only God can answer the king. Because only God can reveal what needs to be revealed. And yet the strategy of the wise men was to convince the king that he was unreasonable. So they sat there really being incompetent about the whole thing, yelling back at the king, King, however great and powerful you are, nobody's ever asked such a thing before. Almost throwing it back on the king like, King, come on, this is on you, right? What's even better when these wise men claim that their gods don't even live among people, and, and again, of course, not because there are no other gods. They are all false. Those gods are with a small g. Our God is with a big capitalized g because he is real, he is true, he is amazing. And you think about this, many people today profess to believe in God, just like these enchanters. Oh, we believe that there's gods, yep, 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 but did they really follow their gods? The answer to that was no, they did not. And today we see the same thing. We see people who claim, oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. You come to America, you're a Christian. You're just automatically a Christian if you're born in America. That's not true. Although it is, seems to be that way and we are labeled that way. And there are people who go to church all the time and say, oh, we believe in God. But really, they are just atheistic God, uh, believers. He's like, what is that? Did you make that up? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> because we see a lot of people who say they believe in God, but then they go and they don't live for God. How can you believe in God and not live for God? I've got a, a coach that I meet with on occasion, and, and he just came out and told me this year. He goes, hey, Rex, I just want to let you know I'm glad you're here talking to our team, but I'm an atheist, so good luck with that. Awesome. He just flat out told me, don't believe in God, but I, I, I appreciate what you do. All right, so you can be praying for me every time I meet up with this coach that God opens up his heart and opens up his eyes to truth. But I sit there and think, he just came out and told me that. And I'm sitting there thinking, how many other people won't admit it, but they are? Oh, yeah, we believe in God. Well, do you read his word and follow his commands? Well, not all the time, not really. Well, then how can you believe in God? If you believe that there's a God who loves you, has died for you, and will someday judge this earth, but yet you want to live in an anti-God type way, an ungodly way, that doesn't make sense to me. We say we believe in God, but do we worship Him with all of our heart, reading His commands, putting them into practice? Do our actions match up with our beliefs? I hope they do, church. I hope they do. Let's read on verse 12. The king was furious when he heard this. He ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. Now, because these astrologers, enchanters, and magicians that were there before the king basically said, hey, you know, you're unfair, king. Nobody can do this. The king says, all right, execution is coming to all of you and all of the wise men in this nation right now. Right now. He ordered to execute all the wise men. As a new king, perhaps he was using this situation to maybe suit his, get rid of his old father's advisors and supervisors. Maybe he was 
cleaning house, so to say. It's time to get rid of a bunch of people in here that I've not wanted around here in the first place. So this is my opportunity. But this group of wise men included our heroes, Daniel and his three companions. Oh boy. Can you imagine? You're just minding your own business. But these ruthless leaders are so upset that you are going to pay for it, even though you weren't even directly involved. In daily life, I know we face a lot of, apparently what seems like impossible situations, right? That would appear to be hopeless if we tried to handle them on our own strength. Or maybe you can think of a few. Maybe you're in a situation right now where it's like, this person is so upset with what's going on, I'm feeling the brunt of it. This is going on over here, and the fallout is hitting me. God specializes in working through us to achieve the impossible. I really believe that. God's Spirit works through His people, doing things that we can never imagine. That which we would deem impossible, God can make possible. And God is going to work through Daniel in this situation to do that very thing. Let's read on, verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them. Can you imagine this? Yeah, who's there? Oh, Arioch, I'm here to kill you. Obviously, it wasn't that kind of an opening and welcome, was it? He probably came pulling up in his chariot, horses snorting, soldiers getting off, pulling out of their sword, out of their sheath. It was probably pretty scary. It says, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. Can you just imagine the wisdom that he had in that moment? How did he handle it to take on his executioner? Verse 15, he asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Daniel... Obviously innocent in all of this, yet calm and discreet dealt with the crisis. Daniel's calmness in this crisis showed what kind of man he really was. Now, I know you've heard this saying before, and that is this. Crisis does not make the man, instead it reveals the man. Have you heard that before? Let me read it again. Crisis does not make the man. Instead, it reveals the man. It's when we get into situations and troubles, we think, oh, his character is coming out. Or, you know, this is what develops a man. This is what makes character. It's like, no, no, no. It reveals character. And in this crisis, we get to look at Daniel and see what kind of man Daniel was. This didn't make Daniel. Daniel was already a man of God. And Daniel went once to go see the, the king. He wanted to request more time. King, please tell me. Give me some time. Let me pray about this. I don't know what words he used with that king. But this just wasn't a stalling tactic because Daniel really believed that God could reveal the answer. He knew it takes time to listen to the Lord and wait on the Lord. And Daniel was was willing to wait on the Lord if the king would grant it. And God was at work in Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel was allowed to do this. And what's really neat is that God can work in the most ungodly people. And he invites God's people to be a part of that process, as in this situation right here. God can work in the lives of anyone, right? 
And then we're not talking about just great leaders. We're talking about anybody. Anybody. Maybe your neighbor, maybe a family member. Some of you are sitting there saying, I don't know how God could ever work through this. Okay, first of all, let's, let's take that, that question mark out and let's say God can work through this. Okay? Instead of saying, I don't know how God, you're right. You don't know. I don't know. But we do know is what? God can do anything. Amen? So even no matter what situation that is, who that person is, God can work through them. The question is, are we ready to step in and join the process? Are you ready to be part of God's solution in this process? I believe that could be scary. Anytime God asks you to step out, it can be a risk. I want to read to you a story about, um, his name is Dayton Moore. He was the general manager for the Atlanta Braves. He's now the general manager for the Kansas City Royals. And there was a time and place where he says life can get very complicated. Let me read to you what he says. It's a wonderful place when life gets scary. And why is that? Because one feels at home, not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally. Life is there. Life is good. Life is just moving along. That place is called the comfort zone, and we've all been in that, right? He goes on to say this, Yet in spite of its welcoming title, it's often located at the address 1,000 Missed Blessings and Opportunities Drive in a city of half-lived life. Dane Moore went on to write this. I remember that comfort zone. I was the assistant general manager of baseball operations for the Atlanta Braves. My family and I were in a great situation. Great town, great job, great family environment, great church. He had a reputation at the front office with the Braves that was welcomed. Everybody loved him. He says this, The struggling Kansas City Royals were experiencing one of the most difficult seasons in franchise history, both on and off the field. The team was losing. Players were restless. Front office uh, had been slaughtered by both the media and the fans. Drastic change was flat out demanded. They came to him at this point in time and said, Dayton, we'd like to offer you the job to be the GM at the Kansas City Royals instead of the Atlanta Braves. I know you just went through 14 consecutive seasons of winning and having some titles. We'd like to welcome you to Kansas City, to a place that has fallen apart. He took his family, prayed about it, and he took a leap of faith. He believed that God was calling him to Kansas City. And he went. The risk was high. And it was a few years later that Kansas City turned it around and got to the World Series. Now, is that the way every story goes? No. But part of the story is when you take a risk, God wants to reward. Some of you right now are facing a risk and saying, you know what? Impossible situation. What do I do? Well, are you going to take the risk or not? Maybe you are struggling with a certain sin in your life and you're like, this is tough, but I need to share this with another Christian who will pray with me and work with me. You know what that is? That's an incredible risk, but it brings great reward. Maybe you're sitting there saying, I need to approach my boss or my supervisor about something, and I'm so scared right now about what their reaction is going to be. That's an incredible risk, isn't it? But maybe God says, I've got a great reward coming your way. Maybe it's going to that teacher, that coach, that athletic director, and say, listen, I've got concerns about what's going on in our school or with our team or with my class. 
with my child, instead of posting it on social media, approaching them face-to-face after having much prayer and handling it in a very wise way, taking that risk and seeking and say, maybe God wants to use me in this situation to bring about something incredible. What we discover is so far that the challenges that we face in life are what? Real, aren't they? And in those times, we need to act with wisdom, which may be risky. But if that's what God has put us to do, then we need to do that with integrity and say, God, if this is what you want me to do, I'll take the risk, but just show me the way. And he took the risk, Daniel did. He went to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar said, yep, I'll give you a little more time. So what's the next thing we do once we get that opportunity? We pray. Look what he does. He took that risk. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret, so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Daniel was in the type of situation where only God could meet his need. And he says, you know what? Awesome. The king's granted me this, so I'm not going to waste this. And he grabs his three friends and says, it's time for a prayer meeting. Let's go to God. He knew how important it was for him and his companions to pray. And I want to pause and, and again and ask this moment, do you have those kind of people in your life right now? Do you have that person you can go to, that one, two, three, or four people, and pull them in and say, we need to pray together right now about this? Whether you hold hands or whether you kneel on the ground with each other. And I'm not talking about why well, send an email into Rhonda for us to all to pray. I'm not talking, that's great. Well, I called, I called Pastor Rex and asked him to pray. That's great. I'm talking about beyond that, where you grab those two or three other people and you pray earnestly, understanding the situation. We all need a team to pray with like-minded, godly, in time of seeking God's help. Theologian Strauss said, The battle was won when Daniel prayed with his friends. Praying friends are a blessing, and in prayer meetings such as this, history has been made. When you consider that execution was at stake, that your limbs were going to be torn from your body, how earnest of a prayer warrior are you now? Probably hardcore, get on your knees and weep and pray. Do we do that? Daniel had confidence that God would do an unprecedented miracle, no doubt about it, and it would be bigger than other stories that have been written so far. Yeah, Joseph interpreted a dream, right? Joseph was given the dream. He was told what the dream was, and then he interpreted it. Daniel sitting there saying, I'm not even going to be told by the king what that dream is. So God's got to reveal to me the dream and the interpretation. It's not been done before. Oh God, give me wisdom. Give me the answer. Sure enough, we read, as you read on here, Daniel chapter 2, that night, the secret, that night. I just got to pause. Those are two powerful words. That night. See, God answers prayer. Sometimes it's in two hours, sometimes it's in two days, sometimes it's two years. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and Daniel praised the God of heaven. This was not religion, this was revelation. 
Daniel did not find it out. God revealed it to him. And then Christianity begins with that principle of revelation. What we know about God is what God has revealed to us. And we have to actively, obviously, seek God. But when we seek Him, He reveals things to us. And we need to proclaim and say, Thank you, God, for revealing this to me. Sometimes we pat ourselves on the back. Did you see what I just discovered and what I read? It's like, no, God revealed that to you. And that's an amazing thing. Our job isn't to figure the things out about God, but to understand what he's revealed to us. Look at verse 20. He said, Praise the name of God forever and ever. He has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what, you, what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Did you see how he started off? He controls the course of the world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom. Daniel praised God for his power and might. Daniel thought how God is in control of everything and he commands all things. How God is mightier than any king like Nebuchadnezzar. God governs the world according to his purposes. And we're obviously distraught and worried about our leaders. I get it. From the past election to the most recent election, throughout our government, our leaders, we're always so worried about our leaders. And we fail to look at this and say that God governs the world according to his purposes. God sets up kings and takes out kings. God sets up leaders and he takes out leaders. And if our leader is who our leader is right now, God has them there for a purpose and God will remove them when he's done. And God will bring in a new leader for his purpose. And I know we get all worried and scared at times, but we need to remember that God is in control. God is in control. Can I say this one more time? God is in control. Amen? And that's hard sometimes. I understand. But Daniel praised him for this. And Daniel went on to say he reveals deep and mysterious things and knows. Daniel praised God for his communication to man. God's power and might are of little help if God stays silent, right? But God doesn't stay silent. Daniel was grateful that God revealed his great knowledge to him. All-knowing, all-powerful, two incredible traits of God are revealed in Daniel's little praise fest here. I love it. Praise God for his power. Praise God for his wisdom. Listen, we do not serve a weak or ignorant God, church. We do not serve that kind of God. We serve a powerful God, a wise God, a mighty God, an awesome God. And Daniel had the certainty of faith to believe that God gave him the answer even before going to Nebuchadnezzar. Praise God he gave me the answer. He hasn't talked to Nebuchadnezzar yet. He hasn't even told Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is or what it meant. But he's like, praise God, he gave it to me. I'm ready to roll. You know, sometimes our level of faith is often indicated by how long it takes to start praising God. If we won't praise him until the answer is in hand, then we don't have much faith. Greater faith is able to praise God when the promise is given and revealed. You know, that kind of faith is like walking into a stadium with confidence that our team has already won. You don't have to wait for the last few seconds to discover the outcome. You're walking in right now. You know what? We're victorious. I believe we're going to be victorious. That's what faith is. It's not waiting until the last two seconds of the game when the student section starts saying, 
I believe that we will win. I believe that we Of course you are. You're up double digits. There's only five seconds left. Yes, now's a good time to chant, I believe. Are you kidding me? That's called weak faith. True strong faith is walking into the stadium before the clock ever starts and starts singing, we believe that we will win. Can you imagine that? I'm not asking you to do this next Sunday. Please don't, okay? But can you imagine we all start walking in on Sunday morning? We believe that we will win. We're all high-fiving each other before we even sit down to worship God. See, that's faith. Knowing that God answers and knowing that God's in charge, knowing that God gives us victory before the battle ever arrives. Verse 24, Daniel went to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel said, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king. I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, verse 24, read with me. Daniel went to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king. I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I just just waiting to see if there's going to be more music. I found one of the captains from Judah who would tell the king the meaning of his dream. Now, Arioch tried to glorify himself in that moment. He goes, I found somebody who can tell the dream. And Daniel's like, ah. Look at verse 26. The king said to Daniel, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay in your bed while your majesty was sleeping. You dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what's going to happen. And it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of the dream, but because God wants you to understand what's in your heart. What I love about this is Daniel said, King, something happened, but it wasn't me. God gets all the glory. And this morning, as I was praying about this week, you know, going through the scripture, I thought, you know what? This is the sermon. That's it. Life is tough. Big situations come along. Do we trust God to take a risk to be his voice box in that moment, to, to go out and say, God, how can I go to this person and being bold and being strong, walking into it saying, with all wisdom, I want to share with you what God's laid on my heart. Do we have prayer partners? Do we have people we pray with? And when God does work through our lives, do we give him praise? And I felt like this morning needed to be a time of closing the servant with just praise. So you know what? God is doing incredible, miraculous things in this church. And it's not for our glory. It isn't about us, church. We've just been chosen or privileged to be a part of what's going on. And we need to praise God and say, God, to you be the glory. This past week, Phil and Lisa, uh, they have a new granddaughter. So awesome, isn't it? Born, born in the front seat of the vehicle on the way to the hospital. Yes, I was truly amazed at that. Um, when I talked to your daughter and I said, uh, what was going on? I mean, it's like, oh, we're just driving. And I said, was Scott panicking? Oh, no, he was on the phone with 911 and the nurse. And, and what are you doing? I'm having a baby. It's like, are you kidding me? It's like, you can't text and drive? They had a baby and drove. I mean, it's like, but praise God. Um, Rylan is healthy. Your daughter's healthy. Everybody's good. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, we praise God that this church is able to help in the hurricane relief. I, I shared that. Um, 
a few weeks ago in an email. I said, I'll let you know how we give. You need to know that every time you put money in the blessings box, that's your tithe you give to the church. We always take 10% out every Sunday and use it to give to help the community, to help those in need. And so we have, it's called our benevolence fund. So in our benevolence fund, we wrote a check for $3,000 and sent it to a bunch of uh, churches in the, in the missionary conference in Texas and Houston that were suffering from the hurricane. Your giving, praise God, is helping those in need. Uh, you know, I want to be so gracious to say thank you, God, for our GPS and two POS leaders on Wednesday night. I'm just going to sort of single them out and thank them for what's going on. The last two Wednesday nights, this place has been full house. So thankful for them. Baptism, praising God for changed lives. Uh, big shout of, uh, of praise to God for this past week. We had two funerals that our church helped with providing food. I know Jen put out there uh, in an email or on Facebook or somewhere, hey, we need help with food. She, we had, she had so much food, uh, it was incredible. It, it was just blew away. And the people at both funerals were like amazed, like, who does this? Well, the people of God do this, right? The stories uh, and pictures um, that you're about ready to see, some of these pictures from the baptism and from GPS and Tupas, um, are just, I want you to see them and give God praise. This is not for our glory. I want, to, I want uh, again, our church to be sort of be like Daniel here, and, and when the, the rest of the world looks, says, man, what your church is doing is awesome. I, okay, thank you. Okay. But to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Not true north, not the staff, not the people in the church, but to God be the glory. I believe we have much to praise God for. And I think of all the impossible situations that may come our way, but I know this, God is able, God is mighty, God is wise in equipping his people to stand up in the midst of whatever comes our direction to serve, to love, to give. And when all is said and done, we give who praise? God, right? We don't take the credit. Daniel right away said to King Nebuchadnezzar, no, no, this is God who does all this. So the pictures, the stories I just conclude on, I just want to remind us, Thank you, church, for being the church. Keep doing it, but let's make sure we give God the praise, give God all the glory, and let's continue to work for him, serve for him, love for him. And in those moments when we're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to approach this, grab your prayer partners, get on your knees, let's pray hard, and let's watch what God does through his people. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, for using us in spite of our sinful human lives, you still love us and you still want to work through us to do things in for your kingdom, to do mighty things that give you honor and praise. God, we thank you for this church and the opportunities we've had to serve. And God, we're not done yet. But God, every time somebody says true north or this person, we just say, hey, thank you, but praise God. Praise God that we can just try to be obedient right now and live for him. We love you, Lord. Help us to continue to serve and worship you in all things. In thy name we pray. Amen.